everybody, and welcome to episode 310 of the At Percussion podcast. Now, it is the dawn of a new age. It is the beginning <laughs> of a new era. It might be the beginning of the end. We're not sure. You might be wondering, who is this new host, and why am I intrigued by their voice? Yep. It's me, Caleb Pickering, uh, the newest addition. Yay! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the newest full-time addition to the now five-headed beast that is the At Percussion podcast, or maybe a hand, maybe the fifth finger. Now we have a complete hand. And I would be remiss if I didn't introduce our co-host today, because we're surrounded by some really cool people, and also Ben is here. So first up, Ben. <laughs> ben Charles, how you doing, buddy? Hey, Caleb, doing well? Semester's finishing up great. How's yours going? Oh, man, I don't know what happened. This finals week, everything landed all at, all day after day. It's been, it's been crazy. Um, yeah. And also here we have back for the first time in a hot minute is one of our regular guest hosts, uh, Brian Nosny. How's it going down there in Louisiana? It's, uh, it's cold. It's cold. Thank God it's cold. I'm so happy I had to wear a jacket today. So, and other than that, my semester is done. So I'm just chilling. Chilling. Yeah. Yeah. With those kids at home, I'm sure you're chilling. Yeah. We traveled with them this weekend. My wife had her first gig in over a year. And so we took them both to Mobile and it was an experience. Yeah. It's also, they were actually great. They were wonderful, but yeah, it's been fun. Yeah. Nice. (laughs) Well, hey, for today in history, we are releasing on December 16th. There's actually two big birthdays that happened uh, on this date. But in 1882, uh, Kodai was born. And in 1770, Beethoven was actually born. Um, I forgot he had a December birthday. But to kind of focus it in on Beethoven, I'm sure just judging by the demographics of people that listen to this podcast, we've all probably have taken or will take some sort of percussion history or pedagogy class or even just, you know, cursory searches on our own. I just kind of wanted to walk through a little bit of the cool percussion instruments and development uh, Beethoven did with percussion and timpani in his writing over his career. So kind of jumping back a little bit to Janissary music, uh, during the last quarter of the 18th century, uh, diplomacy was beginning to replace military engagements between the Turks, uh, Turkish armies, and their European counterparts. And as a result, the Janissary Guard and the Sultan of Turkey and the bands connected with um, accompanied dignitaries to major centers around Western Europe. And then the bands and the instruments got a great bit of excitement and a lot of attention because they were, you know, new and fresh. And, you know, a tradition going back to the 14th century Janissary band was designed to inspire their comrades and terrorize the enemy with loud, noisy music. The instrumentation became very popular and was introduced into military bands all over Europe with the King of Prussia and the Emperor of Austria forming Janissary bands as soon as instruments were made readily available. So Janissary instruments were found in most military bands by the end of the century. Uh, You know, we see common things, bass drums are sometimes called long drums, triangles uh, with the the rings, the uh, the jingles on them, uh, cymbals, tambourines, and my personal favorite, the Turkish Crescent, the Jinglin' Johnny, as we call it sometimes now. If y'all were at PASIC, you might have seen one booth had a, a handmade Turkish Crescent uh, on display, and it was quite a sight to behold. Was it for uh, sale? I'm not sure. 
Um, I know Keith Haleo had a picture with it if you want to check out Keith's Facebook. Yeah, yeah, I know he had it, but I saw I saw a few of my friends taking pictures with it, and we actually need one here for something that there is planned for the spring, I guess, and that they've been asking me about getting one, and I, I was just curious. I think UNLV built one. Might ask them. Ah. Um, as far as percussion goes, Beethoven's got some obvious good Janissary music in his. Let's see, The Ruins of Athens in 1812. There's a nice Turkish march, score for bass, cymbals, triangle. Uh, and funny enough, in the course of it, he says to add as many noisy instruments as possible. So he really wants the rambunctious sound. And he also specifically requests two tambourines, which uh, I think is pretty cool. And his Wellington's March from his uh, Battle Symphony, he's got bass drum, and he really specifies the type to be used. Um, that one also has a great bit of side drum. Uh, two drums for the English side, two drums for the French side. Bass drum represents cannon fire. So some really nice programmatic use of percussion. His uh, Egmont Overture, they got snare drums, rolls off stage for Egmont's dream. And then, of course, the Ninth Symphony in 23 has all the Janissary uh, Turkish type accompaniment in the last movement. And I didn't know this till earlier today. I think that might be the first time of a requested pure triangle timbre in the orchestral literature. So meaning not, not a triangle with the traditional the ring on it, but just a pure triangle sound. I think I think you're right because we talked about that like a long time ago, and I think I like Googled it and found that. So I think you're right on that. Yeah, um, that's pretty pretty cool. Uh, as far as timpani goes, um, obviously Beethoven did a ton. Uh, most likely the first to have timpani tunings besides one and five. Uh, Fidelio, he's got them tuned to a tritone. Symphony seven for the scherzo, a minor six. Symphonies eight and nine tuned to octaves throughout, um, sorry, in the inner movements. And then of course nine, we know you have the chordal writing. And then again, that, that Janissary bit at the end. You know, Beethoven, uh, lesser known composer overall, but yeah, he definitely contributed quite a bit to percussion land. He really got, especially timpani, he got us, uh, he got us playing. Yeah. I, uh, I just was like looking through some December 16th stuff also. And in 1921, St. Saul passed away. So that's one more to add to the uh, the list of things that happened then. Way to yeah. be a downer. Yeah, yeah. Right. The, the Bacchanal from Samson and Delilah is, I swear, it's the first metal breakdown of like history. Yeah, the end of it. Um, oh, great. Well, Caleb's off to a great start here. Yeah, oh, I know. I know yeah, what I'm doing. There it is. <laughs> so our guest today, he is the professor of music at Kutztown University where he's the director of percussion and the chair of the Department of Music. In March 2016 and May 2017, the Kutztown University Percussion Ensemble and its Center for Mallet Percussion Research were featured on the cover of Percussive Notes. And in 2018, it was a subject of a segment on CBS Sunday Morning. He's a performing artist and clinician uh, with Pisces Cymbals, Yamaha, Remo Percussion, Vic Firth, Grover, Toka, Boomwhackers, didn't know you could be endorsed by Boomwhackers. That's pretty awesome. Uh, and Alfred Publishing, uh, his book co-authored with uh, Chalo Eduardo titled Drum Circle, A Guide to World Percussion is published through Alfred. And he also presents solo recitals and workshops as well as concert with the Kutztown University Percussion Ensemble worldwide. So please uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Frank Kumar. How's it going, man? So glad to be here. It's a, a great pleasure. Um, I, this is my first official podcast, so I'm really excited. <laughs> oh, nice. 
Yeah, um, I ran into Frank at PASIC and uh, at what was formerly known as the RAM. It's called something else now. Um, they, they changed the name to like the, the goat Goodwood. or the Goodwood. Good, yeah, not the rest, goat. They didn't go from the ram to the goat. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but I ran in and uh, we chatted real quick about um, the Kutztown Center for Mallet Research, uh, sorry, Mallet Percussion Research. And um, there's just so much cool stuff going on in there. And so I was wondering, yeah, Frank, to kind of kick us off, could you just tell us a bit about just yourself and how you came to be at Kutztown? Yeah, uh, sure. I So I was... Uh, there was a sabbatical replacement position available. So as I was finishing up at Kentucky, um, I applied for that gig and I got it. Yeah, UK. And I, I got it. And then uh, the next thing I knew, um, I, it was only one year gig. So I was out for a bit. But then um, I started the World Percussion Ensemble because um, at the time it was, that would have been 1997, 98. And uh, recreational drumming was just sort of taking off. And I had just talked about uh, writing this book with Chalo Eduardo and uh, that we kind of started this, I, I started this world percussion thing there. And then um, we, you know, the, the former professor there uh, was not capable, well, I shouldn't say not capable. He just didn't have any hand drumming or world percussion chops. So, so I, they invited me back and it just kind of led one thing into the next. I have my, my master's degrees in music theory. So um, we had a sort of a bubble of students, and so I was teaching theory classes and percussion, and one thing led to the next, and and I've never left since 97. <laughs> so it's been, this is the start of my 20, well, this is my 25th fall semester, which is really hard to believe, so. Wow. Yeah, that's impressive, 25 years. Yeah, and, and then after, you know, one, once, thing, one, once things sort of settled in, um, I was more into the more contemporary percussion ensemble, and um that kind of thing we just kind of had that sort of taken off and then but we also had this little piece of history in Kutztown which we'll talk about a little bit more I'm sure in a little while but the um the heritage and the history locally just also had this piece to it that was uh, unique to Kutztown and it just kind of developed into our center for mallet percussion well, speaking of the uh, Center for Mallet Percussion, we, we chatted before the podcast when we weren't recording, but I was just mentioning that I am like so pumped for this episode because I studied uh, percussion history at uh, the University of Illinois with Bill Mersch, who is an absolute just expert at all this stuff. And I was fascinated to learn about like the history of especially Deegan instruments, but also Musser and those sort of old vintage brands. And uh, one of the most fascinating things I found is the way that these instruments are just found in a garage or in some random place. And one of my favorite stories, actually there's an article about this. The article is titled, Show Features Rare Xylophone. Uh, and there was a uh, Deegan Artist Special Xylophone, which is like the uh, sort of Rolls Royce of xylophones, found at Hoover Middle School. Some random middle school just had this uh, instrument. And uh, there was a professor that stopped by to do a clinic and, and I think sort of noticed it and figured out how to make an offer to the middle school to get it. Um, but so these instruments, they're, they're all around, but they're found in various conditions and some are in symphony orchestras and some are found in, uh, you know, a grandfather's um, attic as they're cleaning up or something like that. So there's all sorts of just weird stuff that, that you know, follows these historic instruments. So can you speak to uh, how the Center for Mallet Percussion Research started um, and what's been your approach to finding these instruments? 
Yes, absolutely. So there, there's, there's kind of a uh, convergence of several things. So I'm going to try to do this as logically as possible. But the, the Center for Mallet Percussion and its idea began when our primary uh, percussion teacher before me, uh, uh, Will Rep, it was his name. You guys might remember his name from marching band and drumline and all that kind of stuff from the, the Jensen years and Hal Leonard. He was the percussion teacher at Kutztown. He was my teacher at KU. Um, but he had... In 1979, he, he had a reunion of uh, the International River Symphony Orchestra, the group that Musser took to uh, Europe. And so 35 of the original players for that ensemble lived in Berks County, which is where I live, and Kutztown lives, Lancaster County, which is just south of us, and Lehigh County, which is just north of us. Musser had this whole area sort of under his thumb, and, which is super weird because like here we are, that in this region, and it's almost like a, like a folk instrument. So this started back in 1935 for that instrument, or for that, uh, that, for that concert um, and that event. But all those people, when they came back from the International Marimba Symphony Orchestra, they started marimba orchestras locally. And so there's all these people that have all these pockets of, of small marimba orchestras because I think they loved it so much. So, um, you know, the instrument, that's what started the idea. And uh, a friend of ours, Dana Kimball, had had the muster, King George, and he had the muster's vibraphone that's at, at uh, the, uh, um, the uh, Rhythm Discovery Center now. We were, they have it on loan for a year for, from us. It's must, that came from his house. So uh, we acquired all that here back in 19, or sorry, 19, 2015. Um, as a celebration of Will's retirement, and we started a scholarship essentially for Will as he retired, but it blew up. And this is the funny thing. And I, if, if anybody could take anything away from this, we had a retiring university president, we had an interim university president, and then we had a first year university president. So we went rogue and we just bought all of the, not, we, I shouldn't say we bought it, we just acquired all this stuff because people kept, they saw this first event that we did. and the local people just started bringing us things like my grandma played this. And, and, and this is no joke. I was, I, I'm an amateur woodworker. I was working on a little project out in my yard. I have a studio with a garage that I bring my saws out, whatever. A lady drove in my driveway and said, you're the percussionist. And she dropped a xylophone on my front step. And she said, this was my grandmother's. It was in my attic. And it was a Deegan 866, a radio special xylophone that it's a small one that's on the, the pit legs. And she literally drove in my driveway and then drove out. And it was like, boom. And so we've been lucky in this region. I think there was a music store. I'm starting to get some of the history here, but like there was a music store, I think that sort of marketed some of these things to people. So a lot, of, there's a lot of the same kind of instruments locally. So, um, but that being said, it just, we started this event to honor our former percussion professor with a scholarship and it within, three years, it kind of blew up into this thing because nobody could stop us because no president wanted to make a decision to say no. And we were able to get a lot of energy behind it. So, but yeah, uh, I was, yeah. I was actually, I played at PASIC this past year and I think it was like ballroom C or exactly, it was one of those things uh, where we had our little warm up. Actually, as I was warming up, all the marimba orchestra instruments were, were rolling by me. And yep. so I was like, oh, there's like a, you know, Deegan Imperial or whatever yeah. <laughs> um and there's like I said I just I get so excited about this history stuff but I just wanted to share one of my favorite uh sort of spicy stories from the the mallet and percussion history and maybe if someone's not familiar it'll get them started on researching this stuff but 
uh, Musser worked for Deegan way, way back in the, the beginning of the 20th century. And there was a certain point where Musser left and, and founded his own company. Um, and there are varying theories as to why. And I think the sort of accepted theory is that after the war, uh, Deegan didn't hire back people that had gone out to, you know, fight the war and Musser didn't like that. So he started his own company, um, which I think tracks with something that could have happened. But in the Gary Burton autobiography, uh, he says that Claire Muster founded his company after leaving his job as plant manager of Deegan. I was told that he left Deegan following the discovery that he was having an affair with Mrs. Deegan. So that is a, a much, uh, much more interesting story that yeah, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's it's good uh, soap opera garbage talk for percussionists to think about. Well, we, we have in our collection, we do have a picture. I didn't know this, but but Muster had a son. And uh, he didn't survive. But did it look a, like Mrs. Deegan? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know what Mrs. Deegan looked like. But but there's a picture of his son standing on a box playing a marimba, like because he was so he was a he was a little tiny. No, he was, he was a little kid, so he couldn't reach a marimba keyboard. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know what she looked like. <laughs> we, we we don't have that in our records yet. Yeah. <laughs> Not yet. But yeah, there would be some DNA testing in records before too long, I guess. But and they're also like, if anyone's not familiar, the the Deegan patents uh, went through several hands over the years. But they actually now Yamaha owns the the Deegan patents, which I think is unexpected. A Japanese company would get that. But when you look at the old Deegan Imperial and you look at the modern Yamaha YM6100 Marimba, like they look, you can see the evolution there. It's it's definitely yeah. very much modeled after that. Well, Yamaha has, I mean, they've actually been to my house here. Well, representatives of Yamaha have been here to sort of look at some of the stuff that we've got going on uh, because they were asking, my, my Deegan uh, 145 vibraphone has a little lever to lock the pedal down. And so when I'm doing like multi-percussion pieces that require the open bar, like there's there's a few opportunity or instances where I needed to lock the pedal down. I was like, Yamaha, like do that. Because it's, it seems like a simple thing. They do that on the orchestra bells, but I would love for them to have this on the vibraphone, to be honest. But anyway, they, they, they've sort of sampled the sounds of my Parsifal bells. They've sampled some of my uh, regular standards and, and the specials. Yeah. So I, I knew I, do, I did know they have that, but, you know, I, you know, they move slow in some cases. <laughs> well, and it's been, it's weird the way that I guess the business used to go because I've I've got this right here, this Glock that's mine, and it is a I don't know if you can see it, but it is a Roy E. Duncan. Yeah, yeah, Roy E. Duncan, and I I put it on orchestral percussion, the Facebook group a while ago to try and find out like some history of it because a friend of mine just gave it to me that it was like his grandfather's that he bought or something like that, and it turns out that it's a Deegan. It's yep. a it's a Deegan standard that apparently he would make instruments for people and then they would go and put their own badge. Right. That, on that was very so common. I, it, apparently, yeah. But for me, it, like my my head exploded when I heard that because just the idea of, oh, hey, I'm going to take this Adams, you know, marimba and I'm going to stamp Nosny on it and be like, yeah, this is the Nosny. Like, that just it must have been a right. time where they were playing fast and loose with all. Definitely would not definitely would not purchase that one. Well, <laughs> it was it was it, it it was a branding thing. So Levy did the same thing. So I had a Wurlitzer. Uh, it was branded Wurlitzer. So like other music companies would would essentially connect with Deegan or Levy to say I want I want to, we want to sell some orchestra bells. 
And so the I had a Wurlitzer set of orchestra bells that is clearly a, a Deegan, I'm sorry, a, a Leedy instrument because it looks just like my Leedy instrument, identical. Every, not, nothing changed other than the stamp on the front of the case. It's just crazy to me. I, I get, yeah, it must have just been, yeah, before they really kind of, you know, clamped down on, you know, intellectual property and copyright and, and, and all patents and all that, I guess. Well, I think it was um, just, so the Wurlitzer was the organ company. So Wurlitzer made instruments and they had organ, you know, bells and xylophones within the organ. So they, they would buy probably bars or whatever, and just probably make an agreement with Leedy or Deegan and say, well, and also, like, if, you know, today, if Steinway wanted to put a marimba in their catalog, not that they do, but I'm sure Adams would be happy to to make a marimba and slap Steinway on it. <laughs> maybe, maybe, sure, yeah. could be. <laughs> when you're dealing with all this vintage stuff, you know, stuff from 100 plus years ago, in some cases, how much of that do you have to go through, such as restorations, like when somebody brings you a board? Or if I know you have the, you know, the Gordon Peters library, you know, how much cataloging and preservation and restoration of those materials do you have to go through? Well, right now, um, this is, that's a great question. Right now, we are literally just in boxes in the main percussion studio. I mean, it's literally in plastic, like uh, Rubbermaid boxes, because we don't have a filing system. Um, I've just been approved to buy a, a, museum quality software system that's going to be able to catalog all that. So that's going to take some time. Um, as far as the instrument, so so the, the hard part about, I, I have an intern that's from our library science. We have a master's in library science at Pittsdown, so which is really convenient for us because the those uh, master's students come over and sort of root through everything and they, they kind of tell us where that we need to put it because we, we, you know, we don't have that skill set really. And um, but in terms of the actual instruments, um, I, I do very little restoration on them. Um, if they're really in a bad shape, I generally don't, I mean, I, I don't wanna sound, sound funky about this, but I, I don't, if it's something that we have to put a lot of work into, if it's not super unique, I, I, I don't necessarily accept it. And then we have a lot of people that, you know, they saw after the CBS Sunday morning uh, segment, I had phone calls for people wanting me to buy their instruments and we don't, we had, we just don't have the budget to buy their stuff. I mean, I had a, I had a lady from San Diego and sent me this, like this huge list of equipment, which would have been great for anybody, but it just, I, you know, it was over a hundred thousand dollars of stuff. And I just, we just couldn't, we just couldn't do that. So the instruments that come to us, if they're, unless there's something super special, um, they're generally in playable condition. And to be honest with you, this might sound silly, but you know, we're at the end of our semester. Some of my students are going to take some of these instruments home with them to practice on uh, over their break because the people that have given them to us want them to, to be played. That's, that's, that's simply the, the truth of it. And so I have my Deegan Imperial Marimba, which is a weird oddball instrument. And I, uh, Ben, I don't know if you saw it at PASIC or Kayla, if you saw it at PASIC, it was the silver one. Um, it literally, the bars are painted silver. And I thought when I, I did see lady, it, yeah. <laughs> so, so the lady came and gave that to us and I thought, oh no, like she painted the bars, like she painted the bars. I can't believe this. And then I unrolled them and they weren't painted. They were natural. That was the factory finish. And so the number on the inside of the instrument says Deegan 64, which is what it, that model number is. 
but it said SPL. So it must've been a special order. Then she gave me a picture of her mom the first day she got this instrument. And she's this little kid with a gleamingly silver uh, uh, Imperial Marimba, which is so wild because all, all of them were this other thing. So I'm sure that's the only one that exists on, on that level. And it's just, but you know, the lady gave that to us because she said, I, you guys are gonna use it. And so I'll, one of my students will take that home over Christmas break and, and it's a four octave instrument, but they can work on some Mitchell Peters and permutations and whatnot, you know. So I think, I think that's so great that you, you do send them home and, and they do get played because like what, what good is an instrument in a museum if we can't hear it? Right. And as long as I'm sure you're teaching your students to be responsible and not crack bars and you know, it's like, yeah, it should be played. Good. Yes, absolutely. And, and the truth is, the, the worst conditioned instrument that we have is the Musser King George. <laughs> it's all broken. I mean, all the bars on that thing, well, not all of them, there's like five bars that are totally broken on it, but I probably won't get it repaired because yeah, I don't want to, once, once you get into that piece, then you're going to have to refinish the bars and the, and the finish that's on those bars is, that's different. But the cool thing about that instrument, that's the instrument that Gordon Scout re uh, recorded two Mexican dances on on his original LP. So it's cool to have that. And, and we just got Gordon's actual other King George, his, his other, his, his actual instrument is at our, our school now too. So anyway, but uh, so as far as the, the maintenance, the only things that I've ever really done, I retuned our Deegan uh, 266, the four and a half octave artist special, because the artist special xylophone sounds a little funky because of the tuning um the, because it's not quint tuned so it has this kind of a strange sound when you're putting it with a442 instruments so i did retune the 266 which is the four and a half octave one and that's a, there's another reason i did that and uh, i don't remember who mentioned this i think maybe it was you ben but this instrument came from a high school a uh, high school band director called me and said we need a tuba we've got this four and a half octave xylophone that we're never going to use do you want it and so we made a deal for two grand i got that instrument and he got a tuba. <laughs> yeah, that reminds like at uh, Illinois. I remember Bill Mersh. I think he said below the stage he found oh, two yeah, an artist special. Just like what? Who? Why? Who put these here? Why? Why aren't they? <laughs> our, our 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 888. Our Deegan uh, 888 was in a shower in an old dressing room in the <laughs> auditorium. I was a student when we found it. We were literally like, "What's this room?" And we opened his door, and it's like, "Oh, it was an old shower, like the off stage." And, you know, of course, you need to, as part of your archives, have a list of all the weird places instruments have been found yeah. so that people can look, look in those places. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. And, and the thing wasn't, the thing wasn't set upable. It was broken. It was just in, but it had, its, it was in, it had boxes and cases and everything. And so as a sophomore, I was a finalist in a soloist competition. And I actually, a buddy of mine repaired the end pieces for it so that we can set it up. And I took that to Michigan as a, as a sophomore in college to compete in a soloist competition. I didn't win. <laughs> I came in second, stupid saxophone, <laughs> but I'm not bitter. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Man, that's crazy. I, it makes me want to go to work right now and just start digging around in the basement and hope, I don't know, hope some sort of board turns up. You mentioned this at PASIC and I thought it was pretty pretty interesting uh you said y'all had found a piece written by percy granger for the musser tuneful percussion like a percussion ensemble work that hasn't been played or released yet 
Correct. So, uh, well, David Harvey, so if you guys are following any of the uh, historic Marimba stuff that's on Facebook, David Harvey and sorry, I... We, sorry we were, to interrupt, but was it for Musser or Deegan instruments? Because I no. know a lot of the score, Musser score, or the uh, Granger scores will actually say for Deegan tuned instruments. Yeah, sorry. It I was for Musser. It was for oh, Musser. Oh, okay. And, Must and, have been and, after the affair. <laughs> yeah. So, so to be honest with you, I, I had it out. It's on my desk at my office and I was going to bring it home and I totally spaced and i was gonna gonna show it to you guys because I, I know caleb you had asked about that um but yeah david harvey brought that over and it's a manuscript it's a it's a percy granger manuscript and it says for musser on it which is pretty cool and um yeah no i don't think so the musser family has been had, the buzzer family has been here so they've actually come up and and the remainder of the lineage of him they've been up and they've actually shared some stuff with us and photos and it's so it's really interesting. Um, a lady who was a caretaker for Musser, she kept a whole bunch of stuff because she didn't want it to get thrown away. I guess the family was going to clean out the, the homestead and they were throwing stuff out. And so we have all of these pictures. I have a record of Musser that he made for his mom for Mother's Day. It literally is an old 78 record that he was somehow recorded back in the day. And it's him playing hymns for Mother's Day for his mom which is pretty, pretty wild. And so we put it on the, we have a 78 machine at KU. So we put it up there and played it. It's wild. I mean, he's singing and playing marimba. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. So it's just, but he's like, and he's, he speaks to his mom on the, on the recording. Yeah. So we've gotten this from, so this, this lady said, I, I couldn't let this go. And she just brought it up, dropped it off at KU and it's like, peace. So it's just, but because Muster was local, I mean, he was from the Lancaster area here. So I think there's a lot of, a uh, lot of folks that are just locally want to support some of that stuff. They still have that memory. So when, when we started the Center for Metal Percussion, they were just, you should have this, which is, you know, we're, we're, it's great for us. So is this a piece that's going to be put out? I mean, I'm sure there's lots of people that are really interested in what this piece sounds like is it something that's going to be published right so i i don't know that I, i'm not sure how we're going to ha handle that yet so uh, people ask us so, sort of these questions all the time all right the mitchell peters stuff the library we have that's been we've contracted that that's we know what the the the, for, the focus of that is some of this oddball stuff i'm not sure how we're going to do that um our grand opening of the building is supposed to be next September. My guess is that our first we, we the first weekend of November, we always do a specific event tied to the Center for Metal Percussion Research. So I'm hoping to premiere it. Uh, well, the, the, the premiere that we know, I'm going to try to do it then. I'm sure we'll make it available on some level um, via library loan or whatever. Uh, you know, we, we don't want this stuff to just it's we want to share it with the world. So it's not about just keeping it at KU. But it, we do, there's educational stuff behind it and historical stuff. So we will do that, but we just don't know the, we don't know how that's going to look yet. So the, our foundation and our university is they're, you know, they're doing all that stuff, all the talk. <laughs> so, but it, it's available to, to be used. That's the whole function. Yeah. I think it's kind of cool. I mean, I bet all four of us probably know a musicologist or an ethnomusicologist that like wrote a PhD. And they went to Rome and sat in some crypt and like flipped through some old books and learned a new language for for a year to write their one paragraph of their PhD dissertation. But it's kind of cool that, yeah, that all this stuff has uh, kind of 
collided and collected where you are and it's like wow yeah well you know on that side of it too it is we've had researchers from australia germany uh france um one of the there's there's a professor in uh france who uh he graduated from the sorbonne but he finished his his uh he was talking about his topic was the marimba orchestra in europe and he finished his uh, dissertation at ku with our our stuff with muster because of muster going over there that's so, cool i mean yeah. that's yeah i mean that's it's totally cool because we have we literally have file cabinets of stuff that i don't i haven't even looked at it's just one of my students is very interested right now so he's been going through doing some of those things to help us know what we have there's just there's dissertations after dissertations in our file cabinets i wanted to ask about the if you go, if anyone listening, if you go to gordonpetersmusic.org, it's kind of insane. I mean, there's 180 plus pieces. I mean, and you can go all the way to, if you want to have the marimba orchestra version of Mahler 1, Movement 3, it's there. It's there to purchase and you can get it and you can play it. But what was it yeah. like getting all of that digitized well, and online and everything? Gordon, Gordon has done all of that. So I will, I've, we are hands off on that 100%. So Gordon um, got involved with us when we did the Marimba Masters uh, event and he wanted to house his... So the interesting thing with Gordon is that he's based all of that music off the old Marimba Masters collection. And so, um, and just as a side note, you know, I did my master's at Duquesne and Stanley Leonard was the Tiffany teacher at Duquesne and he was one of the original Merma master guys. I wish I'd known that then when I was there because I missed a huge opportunity as a master's student working with Stan Leonard. Um, and then you were also talking about Beethoven. I don't know if you're aware of the Lauren Mazel, Stan Leonard uh, additions to the timpani parts of all the Beethoven symphonies because they, because Mazel changed because he thought that um, his idea was that uh, Musser, or sorry, Musser, Beethoven would have written more parts had the drums been able to be tunable at that point. So when he did with uh, perform with the Pittsburgh Symphony, there were other t added timpani parts. So that's a side note. But anyway. Actually, um, uh, also like one weird uh, fact is that Stokowski had toyed with the idea of adding bass marimbas to the bass section of the orchestra for right. more clarity. Her Correct. Um, I don't think it ever. I don't. I don't think it made past the experimentation stage. But no, no weird but orchestra say, footnote. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But um, but back to the uh, Peters collection. He Gordon. So when I go to, I'll be in Midwest next week. Um, I'll reach out to Gordon. I I don't. I doubt he'll come out. He usually comes out. And we usually have lunch when we get out there. But Gordon has diligently arranged all those. That's not all from the original Marimba Masters collection. He just still does that. I think that's what he does to keep active. And so he has several engravers that he works with that provide us the digital copies on all that. In fact, he's faster than the digital uh, engravers because people will call us and be like, hey, we want this piece. And I, I don't have it yet. I, I legit just don't have it yet because it's not come back from, from the, the people who are putting it into the digital form. So that is sort of its own thing. And um, Gordon wanted that to be, um, sort of a uh, resource so that it could help fund our, our Center for Metal Percussion. But yeah, he gave us all of that stuff just to sell, basically. But then, you know, the other thing with Gordon Peters is that he's, he's so funny because uh, he's com 
like if you put Gordon Peters and Robert Van Sice in a room, they will they will self destruct both of them because Gordon Peters only does those transcriptions. You know, he thinks that that is. I mean, in his in his world, that's what he really wants to wants to see percussion evolve as the reading, the playing, um, and he wants a string bass with all of those arrangements. And uh, I, I was at the, the National Percussion Festival in Indianapolis a few years ago, and like Van Sice just won't, he won't listen to a transcription. He, he's not gonna comment on that because he's thinking you know, more uh, new, contemporary, original music. And you know, I think there's a place for both of those things. You know, when I have, uh, we, we play at the McCormick Marimba Festival a few years ago, and I had a real young group of students and they, they had a, you know, they had a hard time with some of that Gordon Peters stuff because it's not easy music. And you think it's a transcription. You think it's, oh, I'm just playing this melody or this harmony. It's hard. And Molly on the Shore, the Gordon Peters Molly on the Shore is unbelievably difficult. I mean, he did the, the Granger arrangement of that. And so it's just like, well, it's, it's a Granger piece, but he did his own arrangement. And it's hard. It's just hard. I have a question you were talking about uh, like traveling to uh, Tampa for the McCormick Marimba Festival and obviously Kasich yeah. in Indianapolis. And like you said, like a lot of these instruments are, I mean, they're old, they're fragile. And, you know, it, like I think there's a certain uh, uh, legitimacy to just leaving them as they are, not like pulling all the hardware off and replacing it. Uh, how do you transport them when you take them to an event like that? I'm sure very carefully is the short answer. But yeah. Well, the King George Marimbas are tanks. So remember, so I, the, we'll, once we get this thing up and running, there's a great picture that we have in our collection and I've seen it elsewhere too. It's not just ours, it's a common picture, but it's the cases of the King George Marimbas stacked up in front of the Deegan building and they reach the fourth floor windows. So they, they make like a pyramid out of these cases. Um, the, the King George Marimbas are just tanks. They're so heavy, they're almost, you know, just I when when we when we decide to move them, I really don't like doing that. They're just too heavy. They're all brass. They're just a ton. Um, the other Deegan instruments, like the the xylophones and whatnot, they are designed to be moved. So in the sense that they have, I um, I have like random cases that they all fit in. They're not original cases, but um, I just like if I see a case that uh, so we. We had this weird thing in uh, Pennsylvania that we, we can get with a military surplus. So every once in a while, like these random boxes that might have had, I don't know, you know, some sort of exhibit displays or, or, you know, screen displays. I'll just go get those for like 10 or $15 at the surplus warehouse and I could put a xylophone in, in that and they have wheels on them. And so, so that's how we kind of did that. I, whenever I see those things come up on our surplus, I just go and grab them. And so, the, the smaller xylophones are designed to be moved. And I do actually have some original cases. The, as I mentioned earlier, the 888, I have the original cases for that. I have cases for our, some of our leady instruments that they, they just showed up with those. So, and those are pretty cool. So anyway, to, 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 to your point, they're not as fragile as you might think. And, um, you know, they're, as long as you take, you know, wrap the bars, take care of them. There's really, I mean, we've all moved those instruments, you, you know, I'm sure you. I'm sure all of us on this call have banged a set of resonators against something at some point by accident. 
So, when I was when I was a student at UNT, there was this grad student named John Roberts who was from South Carolina and had this great Southern drawl. And whenever anyone would clip a corner with a marimba or something, he would always go, "Don't tell Mark Ford." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Will so you know? I, I have so many stories about John Roberts, none of which are appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it, it's really funny because the other part of this equation is that the instruments are just you know now that they're in a place that are being used and whatnot, they there's some deterioration that happens. And so my colleague, former professor Will Rapp, he was. We, we got to PASIC and he was like, he was kind of giving me the, 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 the stinky eye because he's like, look at this Musser vibraphone. It's got some marks on it that it didn't have before. Now that's an instrument we don't move. We don't use it. We don't, I mean, it is, it stays in a space because it's also, it's a three and a half octave uh, vibraphone, which is very cumbersome to move. It's got these huge, it's, so if you know the Canterbury marimbas, it's the same size as the Canterbury marimbas. And it's just, it's just, it's unwieldy. Like, so we, we never move it and it doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere. But he was like, I don't, are they, are they hitting it with stuff? And I'm like, no, I think it's just in the space that's being used. And like, there's a little flex of paint that'll come off every now and then. So, so I, I feel like, you know, we have to be careful about some of that kind of stuff, but that's part of the aging process too. You know, I mean, we have, we have Samuel's, uh, one of Dave Samuel's vibraphones. Um, it's actually here at my house because we don't have room for it up at school right now. But um, a few people told me, like Dave, when I got that from Dave's house, it was all wrapped up in duct tape because he hated rattles. I don't know if you guys ever worked with Dave. Brian, maybe you did, because he used to come to Kentucky all the time I, when I was there. Um, but he hated rattles, so he would just wrap duct tape on stuff. But I was like, we can't have an instrument that's just got duct tape residue and all this so we cleaned that one up a little bit and some people were like oh what, you should have left it what brand was that it's a yamaha it's right. a, it's it so it's a yamaha 29 i think it's 2700 bars on a 3400 frame i can't i, I the numbers are so he must have taken because the old yamaha vibe was like a solid frame that you couldn't take apart and so I think he was probably mad about that and he wanted to move it. So he got the bars fit on the next model. So he, so the frame is one model and the, the bars are another model. But I was like, there's no way I'm going to put that in our center with all the duct tape on it. Like it's just, it's duct tape. I mean, <laughs> and it looks horrible and it's sticky and it's just gross. <laughs> so, so, you know, we, 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 I've taken care of that a little bit, but so we, we keep them clean. We keep them, you know, we try to shine them up as best as possible with very little bit of refinishing. Yeah, so we've we've kind of danced around this question a little bit, but you have eight King Georges, the Century of Progress, King George Bass, Canterbury Marimba, Deegan Imperial Marimba, Deegan Artist Special Xylos, the Radio Special Xylos, the Song Builds, the Leedy Vibes, the Canterbury. You have the sweet one that's the stacked vibraphone marimba yes, the, the, yeah that's the uh, brewer instrument yep yeah so uh, just gotta ask so how many keyboards are over there <laughs> you know that i should know the answer to that question right off um we have actually now we have more king george's and so and here's another piece so i i i don't want to leave this uh call without saying this the concert master of the international marimba symphony orchestra in 1935 was from kutztown very strange right his name is carl fisher 
and his family is still living in Kutztown. And so they have his original King George Marimbo is still at their house. So that's going to come up to KU. We have the one with the sousaphone bell. I don't know if you guys at PASIC saw that one, but that instrument was Musser sold it to uh, a professor at Kutztown, you know, a bunch of years ago. That instrument never left more than five miles from KU, which is amazing. So, you know, we have at this point about 20 King Georges in our midst, which is, I, look, I'm not trying to be a hoarder, <laughs> but, but, you know, the, I, the, the problem with the instrument is that, you know, it's not a, it's not a concert instrument. It's an orchestra instrument. It doesn't have the right range and all that kind of stuff, but we've got, we've got a couple of them at the school now. Uh, one interesting piece is that um, there was a family out of Allentown who they met on, well, they were kids on the trip. They met uh, Paul Snyder and um, Arlene, ah, the name just left me. Um, they met on the tour and they got married. And so she had collected, so we have their shoes, we have her dress, we have the tuxedos from that original Marimba Symphony Orchestra, everything. She kept a diary, unbelievable detail. Um, Arlene Reinhardt. Um, turns out Westchester University just got donated Arlene's instrument. So I got to make a deal with Chris Hanning and Ralph Sorrentino because we have everything of that family except her marimba. So we'll trade her, trade Westchester one of ours, hopefully for that, so that we can bring those two back together uh, because that's pretty cool. And I got a random call a couple of weeks ago. Um, a lady came up from Florida. They're from locally, their, their family was local, but um, they brought us another whole level of detail. And the first time I have a complete list of every member in the, that original orchestra. I don't know another list like that that exists. So it's pretty cool. Um, so like that part of the region is, and I think that's kind of why it's settled at KU. You know, we're, it's just, we're the heart of it, which who knew? So you, you mentioned, uh, we keep on talking about the King George marimba. Um, and so for those that aren't familiar with the, the King George and Century of Progress and these marimba orchestras, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about what those groups were and, and those instruments that were created by Musser under Deegan for them. Uh, and then also, I just had a couple of things. Uh, one, we, we talked about these marimba orchestras like years ago on the podcast. And uh, we, we found a quote from one of the, the uh, I think it was a, one of the female members that was saying, you know, yes, it was boys and girls, but there was no funny business going on on the trip. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's inter interesting. A couple did meet and get, get married from this because yeah. it certainly wasn't any funny business under Mr. Musser's eye. Uh, and then also, I know there exists King George vibraphones, or at least a King George vibraphone. So with these marimba orchestras, they, they made the King George marimba. So where did that vibraphone come from? from and there's a video of I think it's Joe Locke on YouTube trying it out and uh, I think from what I understand the fans instead of all the fans being in one line the fans were sort of spiraled as he went down so that not every key was open or closed at the same time so you get this wild wah effect when you had it right so 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 I can speak to several of those things and, and if I if I forget one please remind me because there's a lot of details in that question <laughs> so first of all the the marimba orchestras um, so the 1933 orchestra is the, the Century, uh, Century of Progress World's Fair. So that instrument and that orchestra 
was for that uh, event. The interesting thing about that, that was more Midwestern based. So there's not a lot of those instruments locally here in Pennsylvania. We have a few, but not, not as many as the King George. The King George, or so the International Marimba Symphony Orchestra, which was for the 25th Jubilee celebration of King George in England, um, Musser recruited 35 players from this region, which is why all these instruments are here, I think. And so those, those two orchestras were 100 piece orchestras of uh, 50 men and 50 women. And they ended up uh, doing these great concerts. And the one, the one, uh, the vibraphone that you're speaking of was I think made after the orchestra the King George, because we also have the King George bass marimba, which was not made for the orchestra. That was that was made in 1940s, um, and that was a, a separate instrument. So the Lionel Hampton, I think the King George vibraphone was made for Lionel Hampton, I believe. And so that um, was a special. If you, there's there's a, a a movie that we watched in, you know, Brian will appreciate this. Dick Domek's uh, History of Jazz class. There's a there's a, a a jazz movie that he watched, and it's Benny Goodman, Lionel Hampton, Louis Armstrong, all these heavy players are in there. But that that or that vibraphone is in that movie. You can see it in, in there. Um, speaking of the fans, I have a four octave um, DeMauro vibraphone that has the same spiral uh, paddles. And it's great. I will tell you this. I love, you know, some of my other instruments that we have two we have two five and a third octave DeMauro marimbas, and we also have two DeMauro bass marimbas, which go down to the low A, below the, the normal low C. Um, that I love those instruments. The problem with the spiral resonators is that- Can't play with the motor off, yeah. <laughs> that's right, that's exactly right, because there's always something closed. And, and DeMauro's motor goes so slow, you can barely hear it, but you have to have the motor on. I'm actually still contemplating on calling him back and asking him to make me one that's like normal <laughs> because it, it can be like a little you bit have two sets of resonators or like interchangeable uh, you know shutters or something yeah right right yeah but it's so I, I wasn't aware of that to be honest this is you know I'm learning something new also that I, I wasn't aware that that King George uh instrument was like that uh with that the fat but but we do know that um there's a we have a photograph of an instrument it was in, taken in Chicago, but we also have a, like a studio photograph of the one that Musser had two sousaphone bells on. And the sousaphone bells, we think, had electronics in it because the, the one that we have from the back shot with the two sousaphone, there's, there looks like there's speakers mounted in the tops of the sousaphone bells. So we think there was some sort of rudimentary a, uh, amplification, but also there were seven pedals to operate the metal bars on top. And when Musser was here and worked with Will, um, he was describing a situation where the, um, he wanted to change the vibrato on the higher notes to a faster speed, and he was using pedals for that. So we have this back picture of this marimba with the vibraphone bars on top with seven pedals coming out the back of it, which is pretty wild. Yeah, but we don't know where that is. I think my, my, my best speculation is that the International Marimba Symphony Orchestra Tour almost broke the Deegan Company. So I have a feeling Deegan made Musser sell that in Europe. I have a feeling that instrument's not in the United States if it still exists. But the other one, the original one is here. And then also like one of my favorite facts about the uh, the King George Marimba Orchestra is they were sent to London to play for this Jubilee. And there was some sort of weird 
uh, legal international thing, and they they actually never made it off the boat. They just it played wasn't, from, no, it, from the shore it on the boat. It was a strike. It was a it was a strike. It was a union strike. Yeah. So the the shoremen wouldn't unload the instruments. So because they were on strike, so they got <laughs> to London, and they never played for the king. So the I, King George. So I heard king, that they they played from from the boat. <laughs> I can just see yeah. like Claire Omar Mustard being like, "Well, guys, you know we're we, here." We can't do it, so we're gonna do what we can do and, and call it a night. <laughs> yeah. So so they had um, so number one oh one, so there were a hundred instruments, right? So there were fifty men, fifty women, there were hundred fifty instruments each, and then there was one oh one was made for Muster himself, which is one that we have in our collection, and then one oh two was made for the king, and we don't know where that is. That's probably still in Europe somewhere if it exists still. Yeah. And then I heard that there, because of this union dispute, when there was some group from London that came to the U.S. and they like repaid the favor somehow. Oh, uh, I don't have to look around for that. But yeah, yeah there, was, there was a, yeah, there was some sort of revenge, or maybe it happened in the states <laughs> first, then when they got over there. But yeah, some some good uh good bitter bitter rivalry there. Nice. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know that I don't know that backstory on that one, but yeah, it's you know they ended up in Brussels and they played in Paris, so they did get some other gigs over there. And again, in our diaries from the ladies who've given us uh, some of this information, there's all the, all the details of the food and the activities. It's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. But Caleb, you had asked also the number of keyboards. We have, I don't know. I mean, I can't give you a, a strip. Like, I wish I could say we have 35 marimbas, but, you know, we have enough marimbas for every student at KU to take home. Um, in fact, some of my students did bring instruments. When, when they, we went on um, shutdown for the, the, um, uh, COVID, I, I just send them home with instruments and they still have them because I just, I don't have a, I don't have a place to store them right now. So it's, it's a nice problem to have, so to speak. But yeah, so I, I'm guessing in the ballpark of 30 marimbas, probably, I don't know, probably 15, 20 xylophones. Uh, vibes were a little less on vibraphones, weirdly enough. But we have a couple sets of song bells. We have a uh, harpophone, which is the Leedy's version of song bells. Um, the, and the, the cool thing about the harpophone is that it's in a case, so it has the resonator tubes, but they're bent and they're within a, like a, a portable case, but it's just, they're heavy as hell. I mean, they're just, the steel bars are just so heavy. Uh, I have two sort of questions to follow up that, um, one is that if there was a performing professional that say bought, I don't know, a vibraphone, I think is a good example, um, and the frame was like functional, but maybe not in quite perfect condition. Like the pedal squeaked, there was a rattle. Uh, in your opinion, for the professional performer, not the collector, uh, should they sort of try and restore the frame or like have a new frame fabricated? In other words, like is there validity to keeping something for the performer that is not necessarily in perfect working order? And then I also wanted to know have you come across any, uh, especially Deegan, um, things even more out off the beaten path than the silver marimba? Like the Deegan catalogs have like the pipelophone and like weird instruments that no one I think has ever seen. Right. Yeah. So, so what are those, uh, what are those chimes called? You know, uh, the Anklung metal. Yeah. Sort the, of yeah. So they had the, so, so, uh, Dan Sullivan at Westchester got, or I mean, at uh, Steve Weiss got, um, I, some lady on, she had it on her porch for 50 years, one of those aluminum onclums or metal onclums. And Dan has it down at Steve Weiss. It's just wild. It's just amazing that he has that. 
Mark um, Ford also has a set of those. Does he? Do, does he? Yeah. Okay, then. And so those are pretty cool. Um, we have the tuba phones. So I, I you know, Craigslist, I, I always go, you know, I, I eat my breakfast and I pull up Craigslist every day and I hit vegan and see what comes up. And, and um, there was a tuba phone that came up uh, near Philadelphia and I went and got that. It, somebody made a new case for it. Which if anyone's not familiar, this is like the, basically like the pipes you would use for yeah. threads. Like they actually had a keyboard instrument of those. Right, exactly right. So, so but I have now three sets of those. I have a three and a half octave set and I have two, two and a half octave sets. Um, one was branded, uh, we talked about that earlier. It's a, it's clearly a Deegan instrument that's stamped with the Deegan stamps, but it's, uh, it's made for Carl Fisher music. Could you, enough. could you send us a picture of those to edit in? I, I can. Um, I gotta, I gotta dig them out because yeah, be <laughs> they're buried under <laughs> some stuff in my, the, uh, the harpophone was a cool instrument. We have the uh, Bode marimba phone. So we had that at PASIC a couple years ago. So that's the metal bars. Um, I actually use that as our, our opening concert. We, we do these, uh, what we call Music Mondays at KU. It's a streaming concert series every other Monday. And so the first one that we did this year was for faculty only. And um, I played, if you know, the Arvo part Spiegel and Spiegel, which is for vibraphone, or sorry, uh, violin and piano, um, I did the violin part on the Bowden Rimba phone, which was super cool. And I, to be honest, I think Arvo part would have wanted it that way. <laughs> so that's another cool instrument. We don't have the wood version of that, the, the wood Rimba phone. That's not something that we own in our collection yet, but you know, I, there's just a bunch of, of those strange instruments that are all out there. And I, you know, who knows when they're going to, they're going to arrive at our door, but we have, we have enough of those wild ones. And, and also um, in the room where I'm sitting, I don't, I can't get them out, but the staff bells that uh, Deegan had uh, were basically hand bells that were mounted on racks. Um, we don't have the Deegan version of those, but we have, um, I don't know if you guys know the name Artie Lieberman, but he was, he had a backline company in North Carolina and he was a collected, a collector. And he, so he's the guy who wanted, uh, um, tomorrow to make these base marimbas to sort of match the King George base marimbas. So he did, and, and uh, he, um, he unfortunately passed a few years ago, but his son contacted me, um, Josh Lieberman, and he gave us all of Artie's instruments for the center. But within that was these uh, handbells that are mounted on racks, which are basically staff bells that just, Malmark was a local, they're a handbell company here in Pennsylvania, um, but they're one of the major handbell companies and uh, Artie convinced them to make a five octave set of handbells that you can play with mallets. So we, ha I have them sitting back here. I just I have no room to put them up anywhere, but they come with stands. And so, so the staff bells that Deegan made, we don't have, but we have a modern version of those as well. And what about the first part of that question? Like the, the squeaky vibraphone pedal question. Oh. Sorry. So, all right. So, um, I, at PASIC this year, um, we, the Heartland Rimba Quartet was part of our Rimba Orchestra. They had, um, and the name is, is escaping me, a gentleman, and you might want to contact them. Um, uh, they had made a new frame for an old set of Deegan Aurora vibes. So the bars, but he, the guy made acrylic, uh, tubes, so they're clear plastic tubes for uh, resonators, with, um, and he had put it on a Deegan frame that was 
match the bars, but it wasn't the Aurora Aurora frame. Because I don't know if you know that Aurora frame is a nightmare. It's just like heavy. It's just it's just it's just heavy, and it looks like Formica. It's not it's not one of my most favorite Deegan frames ever on the business on the planet. But uh, but uh, Matt Colley had this person make uh, a frame for him, and it's separate. So I think that's perfectly fine. I I don't if if you're using the instrument and it is like this this vibe that I have over here, this Deegan 145, it has a mercury switch in it. So I mean, there's a, literally a tube of mercury. So there's two wires inside this vial of glass and when you shift it up the the, the mercury connects you know it, it falls into the place where the two wires connect and the motor still runs it it just i can't take that for a gig with mercury in it you know i mean that would be <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking that's probably not very green <laughs> <laughs> well i'm glad to hear you say that we at the school i teach at we have a Yamaha marimba from the 1970s, and I looked at serial number two. No this, kidding, uh, awesome. Model four and a third, which I don't know how we ended up with that here, um, but it's it's a not height adjustable frame, and it's it's old, so the frame is kind of warped, and the bars don't sit quite right. So I got in touch with Matt Co to make a new frame for it, and so I have to ship some pieces of the frame to Matt to to fabricate. Um, but the problem is the end pieces, the top of the end piece is not detachable from the bottom. So uh, probably tomorrow or Thursday, I, I'm going to have to take a hacksaw to it and cut off the bottom yes. of the frame. <laughs> so yeah, I'm glad I mean, to know that I'm not committing a, a mortal sin in your eyes for, for creating look, it, a more functional instrument. Look, it's also it not what, height adjustable. So It is what it is. You know, I mean, we have all these instruments and the instruments are going to be used, right? I mean, so there, I'm sure there's a zillion sets of, you know. How many bars? So here's a good example. I a band director locally was retiring, a friend of mine, and he was cleaning out his closets, and he found a set of xylophone bars, Deegan uh, 868 or 868 I can't remember the number, but it was just this random set of. Sorry, my dog wants to get in the picture here. No, 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 no. So um, the uh, it was just this random set of bars that he found in the closet, and there was no frame, no resonators. Um, but the actual number of the xylophone came up on eBay and it was the frame, but I had to send everything to Matt Coates to sort of redo because it was all beat up. And yeah, so and I, I've seen some of Matt's projects that he does a great job with like the old Deegan instruments. And there was one I saw he did a Deegan xylophone. And the, of course, like old frames are not height adjustable. And it, it looked like he made a height adjustable frame that looked like I couldn't, it looks identical to the original yeah. Deegan frame, yeah. which was, he, was cool because it kept the style, but it's modernized and, and yeah, no, I don't it. have a problem. Personally, I don't have a problem. I mean, they're instruments to be played, you know, I mean, do you, do you have an old saxophone or an old trumpet that you don't repair? I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if there's other instruments that need to be done, I mean, I don't have a problem with that at all. So, but uh, you know, it's, I wouldn't necessarily take one of my, you know, instruments that are, so here's a good example. There is a, uh, a King George that Indiana University had for a while that came up on, uh, I don't know if you know this site, it's called GovDeals, G-O-V-D-E-A-L-S. And sometimes universities will put stuff on there. Um, the, uh, Indiana University put their King George on there a few years ago, but whoever was teaching there at some point actually added bars to the top of it. So it was not a normal looking King George. They kind of, they didn't really extend the frame they just kind of added bars to the top of the frame. And it was look, it just looked really, I don't know that I would do that. You know, I mean, I'm sure they were using it in a practice room to, 
to cover a certain rep. I probably wouldn't have done that to that type of instrument. But if I just had a set of King George bars without anything else, sure, make a frame for it. You know, if you can do that, that'd be fine. So when y'all made the new building that's opening in September, um, it's only percussion, right? Like it's percussion Correct. focused building. And yeah, then all percussion. Yeah. Is that also where like your students can practice and you'll have ensembles and whatnot? So it's yeah, like split so, half school, half keyboards. So, yes and no. It'll all be it'll all be accessible um, all the time. That's the, the idea of it. So the again, the families who get you know the green family, they want the students to be around that stuff. They want so the muster room that we're going to have. You know, musters instruments will be in that room. But if the students want to practice on that instrument, they're going to be able to go in that room and practice on that instrument. Um, if we, I mean, we're going to have a rehearsal room in the basement. There's three stories on the room. Uh, three stories in the building. Um, we're going to have uh, some large storage space for instruments that we're not effectively using at any given moment. But there will be instruments in every display room, and those instruments will be available for rehearsal or practice or whatever. So that's, again, the families who have given us those instruments, they want them to be used and appreciated. So we'll have the room set up, but um, there will be access by the students to those rooms. If there, some of this, you know, the Bill Kahn collection of recordings, um, yeah, obviously there's probably not gonna be a marimba in that room. There might be a xylophone in that room if somebody wants to listen and play along with some of those old recordings, whatever. But um, the students might not dig into some of that a little bit, but you know, it, there's gonna be enough space that they'll be able to spread around the entire three floors of the building and get their work done. That's awesome. <laughs> that's a, that's yeah, a we're, space. I mean, you know, there, there's a there's a performance space in the building, so it's it's like a you know it's like a hundred seat recital hall. Basically, it's it's going to be a flat floor, so we can do just basic you know any random setup. So, but it's being treated acoustically so that we can have it as a small recital hall. So yeah, I think the whole percussion act, the all, everything. Uh, Richard Wells, the primary donor, um, he he basically said. I want all the percussion in this building. You should be split across different spaces. So we said, okay. <laughs> well, Frank, I think you've sort of hinted at this, but to, to, act, to ask a direct question, you've talked about where the center came from and sort of where it stands now. What's your vision for the uh, Center for Mallet Percussion Research going into the future? Oh, yeah. Um, so I want it to be, a, you know, I want it to be a place for people to come and research and experience the instrument. So we've had a mix of, academics we've had a mix of just interested people like uh, again we've had families of that my mom played in the international Urban symphony orchestra you guys have all this stuff we want to see what that was all about that kind of thing so uh, my vision um, and our vision at KU is that it really is uh, regionally it's important so we're a state a regional state institution so this really brings um, something that's unique to our region to the forefront so we were meeting the mission of the university but also, um, I want people, so here's a good example. Uh, University uh, of uh, West Virginia came up, uh, George Willis came up last May. They did, they streamed a concert from, from our space. So all the, all the students learned George Hamilton Green rags and stuff like that. So they came and played on some of the instruments that we have that, that and they streamed that concert back, you know, well, it was for everybody, but primarily for their West Virginia audience. So I'm hoping we can, you know, provide that kind of opportunity where, you, you know, your, your university is studying, you're studying muster stuff. All right, so come learn a couple of the etudes. We have the manuscript of Paul, um, the Paul Creston concerto uh, for 
Karimba, we have a manuscript of that, Musser's notes in it, and we have Vita Chenoweth's notes and something like that. So if somebody wanted to come and play that piece at our facility, reviewing some of those notes and whatnot, that would be, that's my vision. I want people to, I, I want them to sort of get into that information and just see where, you know, if, and if they can hopefully play a concert there and or stream it or whatever, research, that, that's the, our doors are open. The one, you know, PAS and we and PAS have had a great relationship so far. So it's been really fun to loan our instruments to them and have, you know, we took Dave's instrument out last year for PAS or two years ago. And right now our uh, muster instruments for the 100th anniversary of the vibraphone is there. So um, we're hoping that we can provide that academic space. You know, PAS, it's, it's harder for people to get into some of that material just based on their their setting but we have the infrastructure to get let access to all of this stuff for our world of profession and any interesting researcher so that's my vision is to just be accept accessible you know on those, sorry right. sorry i was gonna say on, on those scores manuscript you mentioned with with notes from musser and, and various other people have there been any particularly enlightening or interesting or funny notes that you've come across? I, I would. I haven't researched all those right now, but it's interesting because you know Vida and Muster, from what I understand, had a little bit of a conflict at some point. You know, so uh, it's going to be. We have both manuscripts with both of their notes in it. I would love to be able to compare the two. That kind of that kind of idea. Um, but then also, I think that with the. Um, uh, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Sorry, my dog rang my wind chimes over there. He got up on the thing. I heard the bells ringing. So I don't know if you guys heard that, but he's climbing on stuff. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. But but overall, I just, you know, I, I want there to be access. And whether we decide to go online, um, some of the stuff we're going to put accessible via, you know, a website or whatever. I don't know how that's going to look yet. We want, we want people to come to the building, obviously. We have a building to experience the instruments. But... I think some of the basic information will probably end up getting online and have that accessible as well. I mean, I have a friend who does, he's a history historian person with libraries and hearing him talk about just the process of taking like an old text and preserving it and digitizing it and making sure it's safe and the copy is good and usable um, is much harder than people I think think it is. It really is. And, you know, and, you know, we talked with, we've been up at the PAS uh, museum and we've talked with those folks there and it's just the, the software, I mean, all the aspects of it, but the one cool thing at KU that's happening right now is that it's actually brought this project. I, I, I had no idea. There are other special collections at KU. I mean, we apparently have a bug collection that's like really well known. I don't know, <laughs> but so they're, they're now looking at the university of saying, oh, look, these are our unique collections. Maybe we should put these all together and have one sort of website that people can know about this. And then, you know, you're going to go to the, the Marimba collection or the keyboard, the Center for Malprofession. But on that same web page, there's also the, you know, the fancy bug collection or whatever, you know, whatever else is out there. Because it's, I, I think that's what the university can offer that, it's harder for an organization to do that doesn't have the infrastructure. You know, universities are set up for academic development. So, yeah, man, this has been, I'll tell you what, I know Ben's geeked out quite a bit um, in the past hour, but yeah, this has been one of the more en yeah, enlightening, cool um, 
content episodes i think i've heard in a while of course you know and i I apologize to everyone listening from my just rapid train of thought derailing constantly i just have so many things i'm excited about (laughs) you remember when i was the host in the first five minutes of the show and then and then ben took it over and then ben brought up the musser possible affair even on the musser he's high on musser it's cool you know i mean and the funny thing is that you know we have all this stuff and i we and i have no intention of being the be all end all of all this information because it's in development and that's the thing you know you talk about working with bill i love bill i you know we, he and i played together in a couple gigs in um, the early 2000s mid 2000s and you know his knowledge uh dave uh dana kimball who's helped us get this started um you know david eiler up in minnesota i mean like all these so many people have little pieces of information. Mike Lorenz up in Milwaukee. I mean, uh, Daniel Squires. I mean, there's all these people that have all of this pieces of information. I'm, you know, I'm hoping if there's anything that I can do for our Center for Malprofession is really to bring all of those kind of folks together and really be the sort of resource for all of that. I mean, it's just, I mean, because we don't all know the complete story, but we know some of the stuff you know and i think hopefully by putting all of our things together we can we can create the complete story yeah and i think it's it's interesting we're we're marimba is now or mallet percussion in general is now getting old enough that we do actually have a history it's not it's not the beginning anymore and i think for so many modern students marimba history starts with lee howard stevens or lee and gordon or lee gordon bill uh and it's not a knock on those guys it's just it's it's much older than that. There was a lot of stuff at the beginning of the 20th century, and we think of the the five octave marimba as being premiered in what 1984 or something like that, and and it existed a long time before that, and then it went away, and then it came back. So yeah, it's it's fascinating to hear all this. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I've been I, I played and and worked with Israel Moreno in Mexico, and we're talking about publishing his dissertation because his dissertation is extensive on the marimba in South America and Mexico, and you know, we, we need to, we need to incorporate that right now. You know, we used to have a, a we know we've, we've had a great luck with not having instruments getting stolen, but our Mexican marimba got stolen, believe it or not. I mean, it was loan, it was on loan to a group in Philadelphia and somehow somebody took it and it's gone. So like we, it's not just about the marimba as we know it, but we want, we want to make it a global and, you know, kind of a center for, that instrument, the keyboard percussion, you know, it's Center for Mouth Percussion Research, not just marimba as we know it. And Lee has been exceptionally supportive of our our events. He's been here, um, you know, Vita Chenoweth's family has helped us with getting her stuff. And it's just, the, the list is just amazing that we're just so fortunate that people recognize that we're gonna have the distribution ability. For it. And I think that's really the, the key. And that's what I want. I want it to be open for everybody. So back to the original question of my vision, that's the vision. I want, you know, for anybody who's interested in it to be able to come and just get what they want without restriction. Wow. Thanks so much again. So fun. It's been fun for me. Thanks. Thanks so much, Frank, for, for hanging out and giving us your time. Thanks, Ben, for being here, of course. Uh, obligated. Absolutely. So before I forget, yeah, big thanks to Brian Nosney. If you're not uh watching online he had to slip away a little bit ago for a gig so um thank thanks again brian for hanging out with us and we'll catch y'all on the next one